Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. It's PNN for Sunday, November the 1st. It's 48 hours until the election, you guys. Oh, my God. Um, Tonight, we are going to cover uh, everything pre-election soup to nuts. There's a lot to talk about, and I'm here for it. Then we've got Janine Moloff on uh, some new COVID research that is uh, pretty startling. Uh, If we got some time, I want to uh, uh, share with you guys, I want to replay a piece of this interview that Janine did with Greg Palast. Uh, we'll see if there's time for that, but I think that that kind of slots in with what we're doing tonight pretty well. Um, you know, let's get, let's, let's get right into things. You know, we're going to, we're going to file this under the beat. You know, we're exhausted. We're all exhausted. This election has gone on for way, way too long. Uh, the Republicans haven't had the primary that the Democrats had. Of course, the, so the Democrats have had a year and a half of this bullshit. Um, and, yeah, we're a little bit at week, at wit's end. And so with 48 hours to go, I thought the thing that would be most effective and most helpful for our listeners is to go over some scenarios and some predictions. And I want to address a lot of the fears that I think people have right now as we're going into this particular election. And yeah, so there is a lot to talk about. Right before uh, airtime, this uh, notification came up on one of my mobile devices. It was a BuzzFeed. This is a BuzzFeed news article. They don't trust the government or police to protect them after the election, so they're taking matters into their own hands. This is quite an article about uh, people on the left and people on the right, or you might say people on the right and people on the left, uh, arming themselves and turning into you know, post-election preppers or, you know, pre-results preppers. You see, what's going to happen, there's there's three scenarios for this election. Uh, in the eastern time zone, you've got Pennsylvania, Florida, and Ohio. If those states go for Biden, mm, I think it's over. I think you've got a Bolivia situation there. I think you've got a clear uh, vision of what things could look like, you know, that, that, that Biden's winning um, with those three states. Now, if he, if it starts to look like it's too close to call in Florida, which is what Trump is, is wanting and expecting, and he will, he is able to uh, uh, exploit that, um, then, uh, then, uh, then that's a worst case scenario. Trump wins with chaos. Uh, Anytime in any kind of chaos that is generated during this election, that is going to accrue to his benefit. All right. Um, And that's, and that's something that he strategized for. I just had an article in front of me 
not too long ago about uh, his, he's been working with the governors of Florida, DeSantis, and the governor of North Carolina specifically to muck things up in the courts should there be a too close to call situation. So we have to really look out for that. Now I'm going to make some some predictions and some give you some of my observations and prognostications here in a second, but I just want to get the, the basic facts out of the way. So you've got these three scenarios. If it's a landslide and indicated by Biden winning in Pennsylvania, Florida, and Ohio, the big three states in the eastern time zone, um, the big three swing states in the eastern time zone, then then things are looking good and we can feel good about that. Now, if any of those states are in contention, if any of those states are not clearly going for Biden, then we're going to probably go into this protracted, uh, not getting the election results for you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, who knows? All right. So we want to see, we want to see those landslide numbers. Of course, everybody's aware of that. Um, if it's close, it's going to go on for weeks. And if there's chaos, that chaos is going to, uh, is going to benefit Trump. It just is. Um, not saying, and we're going to get to this, not saying uh, not to protect yourselves, you guys on the left. Um, but, but, um, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And, uh, and I, I've got a story for you on that. Like I just said with, with Buzzfeed, but I, I want to put people a little bit at ease. And so I want to share with you at least how I'm seeing things shape up through the polls that I'm looking at and through my lived experience. And, uh, and, you know, uh, I know that, uh, this might sound optimistic. This is not coming from the optimistic side of me. This is not me doing wish fulfillment. This is me just kind of seeing what's in front of me and uh, you know making a call on it. So what I'm seeing is uh, infrequent voters, people who don't usually vote in uh, presidential election years. I'm seeing those folks being pushed to the polls. And maybe it's because, you know, Donald Trump has been saying now for weeks that, you know, he's going to do everything he can to uh to uh to purge you from the polls or to or to purge you from the voter rolls and to make sure that it's very very difficult to vote, you know, he uh um ripped the machines out of the United States Postal Service so that ballots couldn't be uh, read, couldn't be fed through the machines by barcode, which allows for quicker delivery of the mail or (laughs) quicker isn't the right word, you know, a modern version of mail delivery. So he had all those machines ripped out and has been in court now for a while arguing that, um, that ballots have to be counted by election night or else they won't be counted. So that those kinds of decisions have been going down in um, some important states. Uh, The Republicans and Donald Trump's election campaign are definitely bringing their A game with regard to throwing every monkey wrench that they possibly can into the machine. So make no mistake, this is, a uh, quite a formidable 
enemy, you might say. Um, However, I think from what I'm seeing is that we have a lot of, uh, that we have a mass of infrequent voters who uh, generally don't vote in elections. They kind of see themselves as sitting on the sidelines. They kind of see themselves as, yeah, you know, I'm kind of interested, but maybe my vote doesn't count. And, and, you know, definitely, you know, don't listen to enough of politics to understand about local elections. And I know a lot of people don't vote because they don't understand uh, local elections. And so, you know, people who don't feel a level of comfort with filling out a ballot uh, tend to stay away from it. Now, that's not happening this year. What's happening this year is that infrequent voters are highly motivated to vote. Now, I'm not saying that accrues to the Biden side 100%, but it does look like as you're looking at the tallies that are coming in across the states, the the vote-by-mail tallies, which um, political party has those votes, has those ballots rolling in, it does look like uh, the Democrats are out overperforming and outperforming the Republicans. Now, what's, what's really astounding is that we have 83 million votes counted already. And at this time in 2016, we only had 47 million votes counted. So look, that is almost double, almost double the, the, the turnout already. Now, of course, this is because of COVID. This is because all of these different states have implemented vote by mail or absentee balloting so that we can vote safer and we're not voting in person. And by golly, uh, you know, Jenny Moloff is going to talk about COVID at the bottom of the next hour. And if you look at the maps right now where COVID is just going bananas, you're seeing it across the interior of the country. And of course, the United States has got the most COVID right now on the planet, but you're seeing explosions of COVID where there shouldn't be, you know, these aren't like densely populated, like your urban areas, you're seeing them in more rural heartland areas. And I think that a lot of the reason is because people are going to vote and maybe they've gone, they've attended some Trump rallies or something, but at at any rate, uh, um, we got a lot of people, a lot of people who are coming together right now to uh, to vote and to do some other things that we are going to get into in a moment. I want to play this uh, clip for you. This is I found this really interesting. This is a, a influencer. This is a, a a photographer and a videographer that I follow on YouTube because. A lot of my business, I, I, I do photography, and I'm really interested in these kind of side projects with uh, aerial photography and this type of thing. So I consume quite a bit of this, you know, video photography influencer kind of content. And there's this uh, there's this guy, Casey uh, Neistat, Neistat. Uh, he's been around forever. He's a big influencer. And I noticed that he did this little piece on voting today. And it just caught my attention. And I want to share with you a few minutes of this because this is, this is a, um, 
a very articulate person talking about how they have never paid attention, um, but they're paying attention now and why he's paying attention now and uh, some of the pitfalls associated. Great hat. Great hat. I guess I should start this video by saying, Joe Biden, I will be voting for Joe Biden. Um, I really was not looking forward to making this video, and not because I'm afraid of the comments or the awful things that my detractors are going to say about me for making this video, but I didn't want to make this video because I've never, ever felt so disenfranchised with U.S politics. It's, you know, it's every time I turn on the news or I read news online or I look at Twitter or anything in between, it just feels like this overwhelming noise from the world of, of politics. And I think that it just be, has become so overwhelming. I'd always rather just like play with my kids or, or go make a video about a drone or go surfing or play Call of Duty or anything that is not engaging with politics. And I'm not proud of that. I'm, I'm ashamed of that. I think that, you know, like the, the government and the politicians who lead the government, they have a big impact on my life, on all of our daily lives. And um, I think whether you choose to participate or you stick your head in the sand, either way, you're a part of it. So why not inform yourself as best you can and then try to engage in difficult conversations? Not all the time, but sometimes. And then also just no matter how funny you think that this hat is, don't wear it because it's not productive, even though it's hysterical. By the way, the hat that he's holding up, uh, it says it looks just like a Trump MAGA hat, but it says made you look uh, fuck everyone. (laughs) So, you know, this is somebody who would stand on the sidelines and kind of thumb his nose at what is going on. And he brought this hat in to kind of illustrate that. And he's he's saying, hey, I still love the hat, but I'm not going to wear it this year. All right. Continuing. Uh, so with that, I, you know, I'm I'm trying and uh, I've made some political donations this year. I mean, not to either presidential campaign um but to smaller campaigns where I thought I could have an impact. Most of my, most donations that I make are not political. Most are for places like food banks and um, LGBTQ plus causes, things like that. That's where I like to, you know, if I'm giving money away, that's what I like to focus my energy on. But, um, but what I'm really trying to do now in a way I've never done before is to really listen and interact and engage with people's who, uh, people who have political opinions that, that really differ from my own. Um, and, it's not- and I want to just interject right here. That is such an important point, and I think that people listening to the show and people on the left need to understand this, is that people who are not paying – who've never paid attention to politics – in a very detailed way are now, now for the first time, they're listening. You know, in the past, it all sounded like noise to them. It made no sense because they didn't have a framework to put it in. There wasn't, uh, you, you know, they didn't study political science like a lot of us that are junkies did or, you know, whatever it is, you know, people who aren't political junkies, uh, they're, 
mindscape is a lot different than ours. And what he's saying right here is that he is is opening himself up to ideas and uh, and political uh, perspectives that he's never done before. Now, this is somebody, of course, who is uh, who is saying that they're voting for Biden. So I'm assuming that he's more uh, accepting of views on the left. So I think that that's important for those of us on the left who like to teach people, you know, like to share ideas about the about politics and the political process. Okay, continuing on because he says some other really important stuff right here. Because I want to have my mind changed, but it's because I want to maybe better understand. I think that there's there's always been divisiveness in this country and around the world, and anytime there's humans, there are there's divisiveness. But I never remember it being as extreme as it is right now. It's something that like I'm aware of and I feel every single day, whether I leave the house or not. Um, I support this guy, I support this party or this position, and if you don't, you're wrong, and I hate you, and I'm going to say awful things about you on Twitter, and I'm going to show up at protests, and I'm going to scream in your face, and sometimes it leads to violence. I see this stuff like every day, um, and I, you know, I, I do have beliefs, and I think some of my beliefs are, are flexible, some things I don't understand, and I'm always open to engaging in conversations about those, and nobody can make more sense than I can make sense of something, then that's great. It, it informs my perspective. And there are other positions that I hold that are completely inflexible, things that I'm, I are at the core of who I am, and I've always felt that way. And if you don't feel that way, I might think you're wrong, but I don't hate you, and I, I don't wish harm upon you. I think like my dad voted for Donald Trump. I disagree with him. And it's definitely led to some very uncomfortable conversations for the last couple of years at Thanksgiving. But he's still my dad. I still love the guy. I, you know, I, I think... What... I've made this point a few times with regard to... Uh to factions on the left. I've found it particularly difficult to carry on uh, productive conversations with people on the spectrum of the left. I have a much difficult time with that than I do with people on the Trump side. I have family members uh, who are, who are Trump voters and I can have, I can have conversations with them and people don't get, get uh, uh, riled up. It is not that way with other politicos who are, are much closer to me in my political ideology. Right. And so, um, you know, I made a decision a couple of weeks ago that I wasn't going to engage with, with folks who are, who are my friends and I, I, I love them and I appreciate them. But I, I just did not want to get into any of the depths or details of the the uh, anxiety and stress that they were going through because a lot of that was getting um, kind of reflected off of me, getting bounced off of me, and I didn't want to bounce that energy off of them. You know, you don't want to. <clears throat> In this scenario, you don't want to be the master and you don't want to be the slave. You know, you don't, 
then the only reason I thought of that is because I've been watching these Nexium uh, uh, documentaries. Um, probably not the best analogy. Uh, but, uh, you know, you don't want to be on either side of that, you know, and you, and, and, you know, we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can disagree without cutting people out of our life. That is, that is really kind of the point of living and being a, a thinking person is, is to grow in the ways that you understand the world and you grow in ways in which you change your mind. It's no fun to have a mind that you can't change every now and then your mind is going to change. And for it to change, you have to be open to other people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, He also mentions in here, and I've played four minutes. I think that's enough of him. Uh, Thank you, Casey. (laughs) I love this guy. And I wanted to share that with you because I think it's very important um, he says some of his beliefs are flexible and some are inflexible. I think that is golden. I think that is such good information. That's raw, you know, that's a, uh, and so very true, right? Uh, when you are, uh, if you're the kind of person that, that makes calls for, uh, uh, candidates and so on and so forth. Sometimes if you do any kind of campaigning, it's hard to remember that people are made up like that, that people do have an area where you can change their mind, where you can get in and you can move stuff, but you have to, you absolutely have to respect the part of the people that you're talking to. You've got to respect the part of them that, is inflexible and doesn't want to move because as soon as you start agitating those little organs, (laughs) they get pissed, you know, and they turn you off. They don't want to hear you anymore. So, you know, just, just a a few words on, um, uh, on tactics right there. I think that the closer you get to, um, to mainstream kind of democratic politics or mainstream campaigning, the more you get into this kind of high pressure area and everything is about, you know, I don't care about you. I don't need to know about you. I just want to make sure that I can mark your vote down in our column. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not, maybe that's not the best way to go. At least that's that's where I'm at in my thinking. Now the next thing, or the other thing that he that he mentioned, and this is I really want to expand on this, is he he said that you know he, he he talked about divisiveness. He talked about that he sees every day that the country is starting to clash and that people are um, kind of moving in on. Uh, and getting up in each other's faces. Now, this guy lives on the West Coast. Uh, um, I forget which part, but keep in mind that protest culture has been focused on the West Coast with the Pacific Northwest down through um, Oregon and all the way down to L.A. Uh, forget San Diego. It's, they're not worth <laughs> all military there anyway um but at least as far down south as as la 
so you, someone like this, who's an influencer in, in, in LA, in California, of course, they're going to be seeing these protests and they're seeing them more than someone who lives in Orlando is, is going to see. Now, bouncing off of that, this guy's also a young father. I mean, he's, he's not super young, but he's got young kids. And, uh, and you heard him say that he worries about the environment of divisiveness that his kids are, are coming into. And he, he got right up next to, and he almost came across talking about what I think is on everybody's minds. And that is what if we get to election day and there is some sort of civil unrest came right up to it. It was right there in the subtext of what he was talking about. And this is a, this is a guy who usually does videos on, on how to make videos. This isn't a politico, you know, this is just a normal guy. So this is why I want to share this article that I think is very important that came up on BuzzFeed news. Um, They don't trust the government or the police to protect them after the election. So they're taking matters into their own hands. I think that this, uh, Headline is a little misleading because what the article is actually about is BuzzFeed News talked to a bunch of different people from different parts of the political spectrum and got a feel for what they're doing in preparation for the election and how they think things are going to go with regard to civil unrest after the election. Specifically, this is specific to civil unrest. Uh the article starts out talking to a uh, Black Lives Matter activist who identifies as a, uh, as a former Democrat turned independent. And this woman had been injured in a, a, at a protest by one of these uh, pickup trucks plowing into the protesters. So she has already you know, experienced the trauma, uh, physical trauma of being assaulted with a vehicle at one of these protests. And um, she starts out talking about how uh, they're, they're worried about the post-election period being more turbulent uh, than even what happened earlier when she was injured. Um, and that she's been spending a lot of time recently, and this is Los Angeles County, she's been spending a lot of time recently acquiring body armor, a helmet, and some type of shield because she's intent to keep on protesting. And I think that, that right now we do not, um, we do not lack for people who are motivated and mobilized to get out there and hold the line and make sure that our ideas are represented out on the street. If they can't be represented elsewhere, Buzzfeed starts the article pretty much saying as the country lurches towards election day, Activists, right-wing militants, racial justice organizations, and everyday voters have been preparing themselves for the possibility of widespread and violent civil unrest. Spurred by a year of historic tumult, they're constructing their own bulletproof vests, stockpiling food, buying guns for the first time, and planning escape routes to safe spaces off the motherfucking grid. I mean, come on. This is this is like Mad Max 
situation right here. And, you know, we saw this play out this weekend. Uh, there was a there's a piece of video. The uh, Biden campaign was rolling through Texas and these uh, uh, Trump truck a uh, rolling coal truck, you know, those, those kind of guys, you know, a lot of these trucks are like dualies. They're huge um, with the big Trump signs and stuff. They tried to run the goddamn bus off the road. They tried to run the Biden bus off the road and they were successful in, uh, in sideswiping one of the staffers, you know, cause the bus travels with, you know, six other cars at least that are, that are staffed. And people who were taking the video were probably staff or volunteers, and they were, like, hanging back a little bit. And the the, the video is heart-stopping, you know, because you see this giant truck, like, like, swerve into this little, like, I don't know, Yaris or something. And, you know, the Yaris handled it very well, I might say. Uh, just awesome driving skills right there. And, uh, you know, that for, by the way, just a by the way. Uh, for my own situation, tactical driving. I would rather be a tactical driver than a weapons person any day. So if you need a tactical driver, come talk to me. That's my area. Um, uh, moving on, uh, back to this article. Uh, BuzzFeed did a really good job of talking to people on both sides of this situation. And they did a good job of kind of motivating the discussion of mutual aid and what mutual aid is about, which is really important to people on the left. Now, people on the right have their own form of what they consider, what we would consider to be mutual aid. They just don't call it that because it's not in their, um, it's not in their tradition. Um, so, uh, on the on the left, we've got uh, activists collecting food, water, and toilet paper in case supply chains break down, or black and brown residents, quote, black and brown residents are too afraid to go to the store or hospital. Now, I thought that was, I thought that was stunning, that people are doing mutual aid and making sure that supplies are going to be made available to people who might be afraid to go out. Holy crap, that is something else. Now, here's another quote. We are preparing for an extended period of protest that will make the summer look like camp. Continuing, people have this idea that it's all going to be over after the the election. It's not. Well, if those three states go, go for Biden, it very well could be over if they don't. If we have another one of those nights like 2000, or 2004, where things get mucked up in Florida and or Ohio, then then we're 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 starting to get in the danger zone, as Archer would say. Uh, BuzzFeed News spoke with close to 20 people across political divides, Trump voters, Biden voters, Black Lives Matter activists, three percenters, and anti-fascists. They all agreed on one thing. They do not trust the people and systems tasked with protecting them, so they're taking measures into their own hands. And I got to say, anybody on the left who thinks that the police are going to protect them, uh, you know, you did, nobody on the left thinks that. Now, people on the right, I think the, a problem with this article is, the people on the right are completely aligned with police officers and police officers, by the way, 
are a, a huge percentage of the people in these militias, especially militias like the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. These are ex-military people. And by the way, these convoys, these truck convoys that you're seeing, that is a military tactic. That is straight out of the let's overthrow this Middle Eastern country handbook. Uh, the, the, you know, the, it, it's, it's like, uh, you know, this is what this is what we've been doing in the Middle East for for decades. Those truck convoys are I tweeted this out earlier. I tweeted a photo of this out earlier that came from 2014 as the ISIS convoy and all these uh, identical Toyota trucks. It is a thing. And so these guys who are in the military or in the uh, um, contracting, the defense contracting business, security contracting, they've used these tactics in Afghanistan, in the Middle East, and they've brought them back. They've exported that, uh, those terrorism tactics back to the United States. And let's just be clear. This is terrorism. This is domestic terrorism. The way you, 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 <laughs> you don't get in a giant convoy of trucks on the highway in Texas and try to run a, a presidential candidate off the road if you're not uh, itching for a fight, you know, if if you're not daggum serious, and that is serious. And then, you know, uh, you might be aware that Trump tweeted out later that day, tweeted out a uh, the the clip, the actual video clip, and he said, "I love Texas." You know, Texas loves Trump. Blah 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 blah. He's he's egging this on. Now I got a clip for you here in a second of Don Jr. that is uh, that goes right up this alley. But I want to share just a few more pieces from this amazing BuzzFeed piece. Uh, we need, we on the left need to be aware, and there's a lot of good journalism out there right now, but we need to be aware of how far the far right is going and how serious they are uh, about this um, post-election unrest. White supremacists have infiltrated mainstream channels and events like a pro-police rally in Ithaca, New York last Saturday, and uh, they're using online forums and other communication systems like Telegram and stuff. Uh, they've been planning and coordinating their response to the election, recruiting, and promoting their desire for an ethno-state. They've been at this for months, you guys. They've been at this for years, really. I mean, since the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, militant groups, though, have been proliferating since uh, COVID and since the uh, uh, killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, a lot of that has been uh, in response. It, 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 this this might be where where I, where I land on this piece, though. Um, like the woman who the article started out with, who was injured by a truck driving in the crowd. Uh, so the article says drivers have steered their way into crowds more than a hundred times since May. Two people have been killed. And terrorism researcher Ari Wheel from, uh, told BuzzFeed News that there have also been documented cases where white nationalists not only sparred with racial justice protesters, but instigated chaos to accelerate tensions. 
This is so obvious. I mean, you can't you can't look at any of the footage from the demonstrations over the summer without recognizing that that is what's going on. And anybody who had uh, uh, much presence at Occupy is aware of you know how that works. These these guys get in. You know, they call them in the Occupy. They call themselves a black block, and there's no way to know if they were infiltrators or if they were just, you know, stupid idiots or whatever, but they got in there and they created all kinds of chaos. And I got to tell you, when I watched the videos of uh, the riots in Nashville, when they smashed the windows at the courthouse and set things on fire uh, and the particular things that were being um, spray painted on the walls, the only thing I could think of is that that's, that was infiltration, that that wasn't something that leftists would do, and especially leftists that I would know in in Nashville, where I used to live for 10 years. Um, That was way out of character for for that that place. Um, That's just me. That's just me prognosticating there, just, uh, you know, just kind of reading it as, as I see it. All right. There's a, there's another little piece in here where the um, authors talk about how the media is targeted at these events. And I tweeted something out earlier from the NYPD, New York Police Department, uh, said today, it is being reported on social media that earlier today members of the press were arrested during a protest in Manhattan. They say... NYPD News said, these reports are false. All arrested individuals from today's protests have been verified to not be NYPD credentialed members of the press. Now, uh, what goes on in protests, and especially when, when protests proliferate quickly across the country, is that uh, stringers and citizen journalists get out there to uh, do vo- video documentation and uh, live streaming and that sort of thing. This is who they're targeting, live streaming citizen activists. And they're saying right here that NYPD, New York Police Department, credentialed members of the press, like you have to apply to the police or something. I don't even know what that means. NYPD credentialed uh, official members of the press. Um, that's not in the Constitution. That is a highly freaking uh, irregular and likely very illegal. So, you know, this is this is the, the level of, of bullshit that that is um, happening right now. Uh, let's take a little break. After that, I got a little bit more to go on this pre-election stuff, but uh, I want to put a bookend on this uh, on this piece right here on civil unrest. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about uh, ways that elections are stolen. Thank 
how elections are stolen. There's been this crazy person following me around on Twitter now for a week or so, calling themselves Florida progressives or some kind of generic shit, and uh, sliding into my DMs talking about how uh, there's this nefarious plot by George Soros-affiliated dream defender type people to somehow do something stealing election thingy. And, uh, you know, I said, uh, I, I do not understand your allegation here. You're not making any sense. You know, can you, can you form a sentence? You know, can you form an allegation out of, you know, what are you trying to say people are doing? And, uh, you know, I think that, that that's a, probably a, uh, a conservative, probably somebody I've run into in Orlando and, um, they're they're parroting this myth that Republicans have been so fond of for so many years, and that is the myth of the voter fraud. That that there are all of these you know nefarious organizations that are creating fake ballots and and uh, and uh, you know dogs are voting and things like that and. You know, this is this is ridiculous. This is not how it works. And as a matter of fact, there are problems with elections. The uh, fraud situation with elections is election fraud. It's not voter fraud. It's not it's not this this kind of, you know, like ballot collecting, third party ballot collecting. None of that is a problem. And the reason why it's not a problem is because you have to register to vote. You're not getting a ballot unless you're registered to vote, you know. It's not like ballots are handed out like Halloween candy and you just get one and you just fill in your name. That's not how it works. You got to register to vote. You got to have an address. It's got to be sent to your address and then you send it back with your signature, you know, and all of that information on it. And then that information gets tallied into your precinct, you know, so that the stuff that you vote on locally is tallied. All of this stuff is We've been doing this for more than a century with military voters, for God's sakes. People were voting absentee, voting by mail ever since uh, World War II. But anyway, uh, so how do you trust the vote? You got two things, pre-election polls and exit polls. And everything possible that could be done in the United States to uh, to weaken our faith in the election system has basically been done. We have undermined, uh, completely undermined people's faith in elections, and we've done it in a very specific way. And it's with the exit polls, exit polls, exit polls, exit polls. Um, in other countries where we are doing election, uh, uh, when we're making sure that elections are being free and fair, we use exit polls to determine against pre-election polling to determine if there is too much of a, um, a, a, di- a diversion, too much of a, of a difference between pre-election and exit polls. Uh, and generally the number that they look for is 4%. If the numbers um, are different by more than 4%, 
then that's generally when the United States goes in and is like, uh, we're going to overthrow this government because it looks like funny business is going on here. Now, in the United States, there's one company that does exit polling, and it's called Edison Research. And Edison Research has done this polling for media companies now for decades and decades and decades. Um, But the use of Edison research has been dwindling. AP has dropped out from using them. Fox has dropped out from using them. And the reason why is because Edison research uh, uh, back in 2000, at least two decades ago, started as the, they started this practice which completely undermines the validity of the work that they do. They started this practice of as the results start coming in on election night, if the results differ from the exit polls, they change the fucking exit polls. That leaves you no way to figure out if what's going on is a true vote. The exit polls are what show you is a true vote. You don't change the exit polls to match the votes coming out. You use the exit polls to determine what the shift in in, uh, in in voting is. This is how we hold elections accountable everywhere in the world except for here. So the United States is uniquely set up for election stealing uh, by not having this one safety um, valve, this one protection, this this one means of holding. Uh, election officials accountable. It's outrageous. And people since, uh, since 2000 have been, you know, as, as you watch the returns come in, you got the, the exit polls up taking screenshots of the exit polls uh, every like five or 10 minutes. And you will start to see those exit polls shift in numbers. This has been demonstrated in election cycle after election cycle. It was outrageous in 2004 in the, um, especially in Ohio with the John Kerry and John Edwards. Um, just, just asinine that, that we did that, you know, look, if, if Bolivia behaved like this, we would never, you know, we, we would have installed, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse. We would have installed anybody if uh, if they were having exit polling problems the way that the United States does. And as a matter of fact, you know, Bolivia just had an election and just voted out the fascist right wing uh, coup government that the United States had um, had uh, supported. And the reason why they were able to do that is because they have such strong exit polls. It's the exit polling that they use in Bolivia to make sure that the uh, vote that is coming out is a true vote. And, you know, everybody wants to say that, you know, they, they want to castigate the left wing by wagging their little finger at us and being like, yeah, well, look, Bolivia just voted their way out of fascism. That's how we'll do it. Well, they voted their way out of fascism because their their electoral system is actually way more functional than ours right now. And I haven't even started to talk about electoral college, for Christ's sake. Anyway, um, we are doing the opposite of what we should be doing with with exit polls, and it's and it's it's really 
It's really horrible. Now, the other thing that is the opposite of what we should be doing is we've got three, count them, three, one, two, three justices on the Supreme Court that were involved in the Bush v. Gore decision, Kavanaugh, Roberts, and um, Amy Coney Bryant, or Barrett. And uh, and just like a couple weeks ago, Kavanaugh was using Bush v. Gore as precedent for the Wisconsin for the, uh, there's a uh, uh, a court case in Wisconsin that uh, that, that all the ballots so, uh, Republicans want all the ballots. Uh, counted and cured on election night or by election night. And if anything comes in past election night, it doesn't get, it doesn't get uh, tallied. That's not the same all over the country. All different States have different rules, but they had this big fight in Wisconsin because Wisconsin's a big swing state. And Kavanaugh argued using Bush v. Gore uh, to, to argue for shutting down the vote. Because remember, that's essentially what Bush v. Gore did, was it shut down the vote. Now, the funny thing about that is, is that the decision in Bush v. Gore, if you read it, it explicitly says that uh, it is not to be used as precedent. And it's such a bizarre thing to be written in an opinion, in a SCOTUS opinion, that it got talked about a lot. So if you know anything about Bush v. Gore, if you followed that at all, you got to remember that Bush v. Gore is not supposed to be used as precedent. It's a Swede generis or whatever. It's, it's, on, it's a thing in, into itself. It's not to be used in comparison to any other uh, court case, not precedent. But that's exactly what they've been doing. You know, like, like these, these guys don't, don't follow the rules. So if this, election ends up in the courts and ends up in the Supreme Court, you know, you, you've got three people there who were, who argued uh, Bush v. Gore. So that is not good news. That is not good news at all. Uh, what else? Oh, now all of this is accruing to the side. You know, I, I had prognosticated earlier that I think that we're going to have a flood of these infrequent voters. That we are going to see a, a lot more Biden votes than you know maybe we've been anticipating. That's just my feel in terms of you know, it, it, and the reason why I think this is important that it's an infrequent voters is that infrequent voters are not polled. They're not polled in the way that uh, likely voters are polled. Every time you see a poll on uh, news media, you read it in, a, in, a, in news media, they're polling likely voters. And a likely voter is somebody who voted in each of the uh, presidential cycles for two or three times. You know? Some people can define likely voters as uh, two out of three presidential um, or two out of three uh, um, midterms and presidentials, kind of kind of like that. Uh, infrequent voters, like my friends that I grew up with in Satellite Beach or my cousins in Tennessee or, you know, people that I worked with at, at corporate blah, 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 you know, 
infrequent voters, people who are not politicos, people who are like, ah, you know, if it's if I'm excited about Hillary Clinton or if I'm excited about whoever, uh, maybe I'll find my way to a voting booth, you know. But it's a hassle. It's a real hassle to get off work and and go vote, especially in Florida where often you've got these super long lines, um, even during COVID. But um, so I think that those infrequent voters are going to make a difference. Now, however, you've got to remember that with COVID, we've got uh, because of COVID, we pushed this um, vote by mail. Now, Washington and Oregon have always had vote by mail. That's that's not been an issue there. But for Colorado and California, it's it's, you know, not as uh you know, common, you know, like everybody has absentee voting, but widespread vote by mail is, is a thing, isn't a thing there the way it is in Oregon and in Washington. Now think about what just happened, what we just saw happening recently in Oregon, Colorado, California, and Washington with those fires. And um, imagine all of these people who've been displaced by the fires, they don't have an address anymore. If your house is burned down, you don't have an address. Remember I said that the whole thing about voting is you've got an address, you register to vote, you are the person you say you are, then you get the ballot. Well, if you don't have that address, you don't get that ballot. So we could be looking at some problems in those Western states. Now, Oregon always takes forever to report their um, their tallies because of their vote by mail. Washington, too. They always lag behind everyone else. And, of course, California is a huge state. And if there's any uh, whiff of landslide, you, you might, might get a tally on California on election night. But chances are you don't. And we haven't in, in quite a while. Now, Colorado's smaller. And Colorado has been more efficient in the past. Um, so, you know, we might see we might see Colorado. I don't think we'll see Oregon or Washington on election night at all. I've never seen uh, Oregon come in all the way on election night. Um, that might be just to wrap this up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just to wrap this up. I think it's really important to uh, I think it's really important to be real realistic about what is going on with election protection, where election fraud might happen. And recently, uh, of course, this is going to happen, but it's still every time I see it, it just, you know, it's it's like a spike in my head. Um MSNBC is peddling this whole um, Russia is going to steal the election thing again. So take a listen. Take a listen to this real quick. Um, this is a MSNBC uh, telling us that the Russians are going to steal the election. Oops. Come back. New warning from federal authorities that Iran has successfully obtained voter registration data in at least one state. And there's alarming new evidence Russian hackers may be trying to meddle again. NBC's Tom Costello takes us inside the U.S.'s command center in the effort to prevent interference. 
U.S. sources say the Russian military intelligence hackers known as Fancy Bear that targeted the Clinton campaign in 2016 are at it again, this time targeting Democratic state party email accounts in California and Indiana and U.S. think tanks. At Homeland Security's Cybersecurity Election Command Center in Virginia, analysts coordinate with the FBI, the military, and 8,800 election officials nationwide. I'm concerned about everything. I'm a bit paranoid, and so until this thing gets put to bed, uh, I'm, you know, uh, hair on my neck standing up. Last week, the DHS unit said a Russian state-sponsored attacker had conducted a campaign against a wide variety of U.S. targets, stealing data from at least two servers, though the FBI says it has no evidence to date that integrity of elections data has been compromised. Cyber intrusion detection sensors now sit on every state election network looking for hackers. So we're looking for any kind of uh, tremor in the force, as it were, because the U.S. election systems are so dispersed, cyber pros believe it's unlikely a single attack would be successful. But if hackers alter just a handful of voter party affiliations, it could undermine public confidence in the vote. The good news? More than 92% of the country's ballots will have paper backups. If there's any question about the accuracy of the vote count, as a nation, we have now paper records and the ability to roll back the tape. The biggest hack threat continues to be that an election worker somewhere will open a suspicious email and click on a bad link, letting hackers in. I think so. Okay, um, I don't want to poo-poo, you know, too much the idea that uh, election hacking could, could happen. But notice that they're very specific about Fancy Bear uh, and uh, which was a construction of CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike was the company that the DNC hired to police their uh, uh, servers their, and all of their data. Um, and CrowdStrike uh, has been humiliated recently um, with, uh, in, in this whole Russiagate situation when they admitted there was no evidence that Russia stole emails from the DNC server. Piece by piece, the whole uh, CrowdStrike uh, Russiagate narrative has fallen apart. I mean, it's just been it's just been embarrassing to watch. And uh, when when this whole fancy bear thing first started with CrowdStrike, uh, I remember an article that came out, uh, computer professional. And I will dig that up and I'll, I'll pop the link in the in the show notes. But, uh, but Fancy Bear is actually a generic that's, – that's not like a specific person, right? That's, that's not like saying, oh, Brooke Hines, you know, did something. Uh, Fancy Bear is, is, is a generic term that was used in the hacking community. And CrowdStrike just, you know, popped that into one of their reports and said, it is most definitely this Russian who is named Fancy Bear coming from, you know – the, the inside the Kremlin and yada, 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 you know, like all of this, like very detailed, specific stuff. And they didn't have anything to back it up. So anytime you hear fancy bear with regard to these Russiagate narratives, you have got to put on your skeptical hat. You've got to kind of go, Oh, you know, may, maybe, maybe they should pony up a little bit more information if they're going to go down that road. Maybe don't, 
dismiss it out of hand, but maybe consider that you might want a little bit more information. Um, CrowdStrike CEO Sean Henry uh, dropped this bombshell in testimony to Congress uh, saying that we did not have concrete evidence that data was exfiltrated from the DNC, but we have indicators that it was in, infiltrate exfiltrated. And that is just nonsense. You know, and remember CrowdStrike, when they did this whole report on hacking the 2016 election, uh, they didn't allow the FBI to see the server. The FBI and the United States government and the Congress and everybody just just allowed this this report from a private company that was hired by the DNC just allowed that to be used as if it were gospel. Nobody fact checked it. Nobody went back and said, "Well, are any of these claims true?" You know. And then so it turns up four years later that no, they're not true. So. You know, that is that is extremely problematic. Do not do not fall for this stuff. The 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 uh, problems we're facing in the United States right now are not coming from Russia. They are coming from Americans. Now, here is a really good example of the the kind of uh, problems that that we are facing. This is uh, Don Jr., uh, doing a promotion called Enlist Now to DefendYourBallot.com. This is terrifying. This uh, buttresses perfectly with the material we were just talking about. Have a listen. ...to steal this election from my father, President Donald Trump. They are planting stories that President Trump will have a landslide lead on election night, but will lose when they finish counting the mail-in ballots. Their plan is to add millions of fraudulent ballots that can cancel your vote and overturn the election. We cannot let that happen. We need every able-bodied man, woman, to join Army for Trump's election security operation at DefendYourBallot.com. We need you to help us watch them, not just on Election Day, but also during early voting and at the counting boards. President Trump is going to win. Don't let them steal it. Go to DefendYourBallot.com and enlist today. Enlist today. And I don't know if you caught this. Let's see if we can play it one more time. The radical left are laying the groundwork to steal this election from my father. The radical left are laying the groundwork to steal this election from my father. Uh, this is a very coked out Don Jr. I mean, like, uh, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the music business. I know this look. <laughs> I've seen this look. This is, this is a look that, that, that club owners give you at the end of the night when you want your money. Um, uh, enlist now to defend your ballot from the radical left that are trying to steal your vote. You know, this is, this is the narrative that these crazy people are using in, in, that are arming themselves and, and, and buying ammunition. You know, so much ammunition is, has been in, um, in a, oh, what's the word? Uh, demand. The demand for ammunition right now is so high that there is a reported backlog of orders worth more than $80.1 million. 
from a um, ammo income ammo incorporated a major ammunition manufacturer the largest backlog in the company's history one company has a backlog of 80 million dollars more than 80 million dollars oh my god you know and, and and you've got this is the son the coked out son of the president of the United States, Donald fucking Trump, you know, like, you know, saying enlist now, we need you in the army, you know, get, bring, bring your truck out with a giant Trump flag that, and fly it because that's exactly what the, what the Yal Qaeda and the vanilla ISIS people would, would do, isn't it? You know, join, join Yal Qaeda. Um, I know I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, those are driving those trucks around, driving people off the road, intimidating people with these trucks, intimidating people with the trucks, with the flags and stuff. This is these are tactics that are straight out of Afghanistan and the Middle East. Do not forget that you see these people out on the road. You know what? Do not pay any attention to them. Don't look at them. Move on. You know, tap the brakes. Stop. Get away from them. Just get away from them. Do not engage these people. They are absolutely trying to start shit. These are the people who want to. It's not the radical left that are trying to steal the election. It's these motherfuckers right here. And don't forget it. Now, I have a piece right here, right here in my hands. This is the most amazing news piece that I have seen in, in all summer, you know, uh, this, this is so freaking cool. This is so freaking cool that I'm going to play music before it. Hold on. that I'm going to drink a water. Um, okay, this, this article is so free. This blows my mind. Kentucky State um, Patrol, State Police, KSP, Kentucky State Police, uh, had a, a, a training slideshow that quotes Hitler and advocates ruthless violence. This uh, uh, document, it's a, it's a, a training, it's, it's a slide deck, uh, that was used to train police officers in Kentucky. And it came out as part of a public records request by uh, uh, attorneys David Ward and Adam Ladenwick Walton um, during the di- discovery phase of a lawsuit. So what happened was uh, to defend this police officer who, is a, who had killed somebody, he was saying, he put this into, into discovery and he said, this was how I was trained. This is why I killed that person. Okay. So this slide deck is remarkable because it quotes Hitler throughout, just straight up quotes Hitler. My God. 
You know, the very last slide, uh, just kind of as a non sequitur, the, the last slide, the, the whole slide deck ends on Uber Alice, which is, doesn't have an object. It's not like, you know, Kentucky, Kentucky Uber Alice. It's just Uber Alice because people are freaking stupid. Um, it's called the Warrior Mindset, Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky State Police Academy. Uh, this was created by Lieutenant Kurt Hall. One slide taught, titled, quote, Violence of Action, um, in addition to imploring officers to be, quote, ruthless killers, instructs troopers to have a mindset void of emotion and to, quote, meet violence with greater violence. A line from Adolf Hitler's fascist and anti-Semitic manifesto, Mein Kampf, is featured on the slide, quote, the very first essential for success is a perpetually constant and regular employment of violence. The presentation then links to the Hitler page, the Adolf Hitler page on Goodreads, you know, so you can find out more about this uh, very interesting Uh, uh, historical figure Uh, two other slides quote Hitler uh, bringing the total Hitler quotes in this one slideshow presentation to three making him the most quoted person in the presentation Uh, so the reporters the people who who did this report uh, reached out to a Kentucky State Police spokesperson Lieutenant Joshua Lawson who said, you know, they, they were like, could, could you explain this, please? What, help us understand why you're quoting Hitler uh, in, par, in, in your training materials. Um, and uh, this, is, this, this is the response. Quote, the quotes are used for their content and relevance to the topic addressed in the presentation. The presentation touches on several aspects of service, selflessness, and moral guidance by Hitler. Okay. All of these topics go to the fundamentals of law enforcement, such as treating everyone equally, service to the public, and being guided by the law. And Jews are terrible people or something. Um, That's what the police said. This is so freaking crazy. Now, you you know, going back to that piece that, 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 you know, that kind of, anchored everything on you know the civil unrest piece no you cannot you cannot uh what is it trust the government or police to protect you if you're on the left no these guys have been trained using hitler this is this is you you know you know the movement is called antifa for a reason you know it's anti-fascist this right here shows you exactly how fascist they are all right. Um, in a separate email, the spokesperson for the uh, Kentucky State Police uh, also stated that the presentation seems to be it's a few years old and maybe it's not being used anymore and blah, 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 blah. And, and we also quoted um, Sun Tzu and Albert Einstein. So there's that. Um, uh, the article goes on. They uh, they talk to some experts in the area of um, police and police brutality and, uh, and police violence, so on and so forth. And they, uh, and, and more on militias and everything. This 
article was written by a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. These are high school students that did this did this reporting right here. It's amazing. It is freaking amazing. Um, since 2018, Kentucky State uh, Police Troopers, and remember it's Kentucky that killed Breonna Taylor, troopers have committed at least 16 fatal shootings, according to a Washington Post database of police shootings, the most of any police force in the state. Troopers were not wearing body cameras during any of the shootings. During the same time frame, the Louisville Metro Police Department, the largest police force in the state, killed 15 people, including Breonna Taylor. Uh, here's here's somebody else uh, just kind of commenting. They they say that this is this sounds like something out of Borat, re- referencing uh, the anti-Semitic uh, reporter portrayed by Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, and they say that you you know you can laugh at it and stuff, and it does sound ridiculous. That, you know, in modern day, you know, people are unironically presenting Adolf Hitler as some kind of, you know, warrior philosopher king or something. Um, But, you know, this all feeds into this is all part of this ideology that that the right wing has uh, has adopted. You know that that you, you that you must have a warrior mentality at all time. That that you cannot look at people as people. They they are objects to be you know killed and mutilated and stuff. Uh, if you don't have this mindset, you wouldn't be able to do the things that these police officers do. If you didn't have this mindset, you couldn't stand there and and use chemical weapons, use tear gas and all kinds of chemicals on, on protesters. You wouldn't be able to do it. You absolutely would, would be, you know, morally broken by it. Um, the tone and tenor of the, uh, so, so they talked to the president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League, who said the presentation was unbelievable and disgusting. The tone and tenor are overtly white, Christian, male, warlike, and adversarial. Um, they're seeking more public records on it. You know, I'm just sharing that with you. Just, you know, that is an FYI. That is for your own information. These are the people, these are the, this is, this is what everyone is um, up against uh, with regard to, um, with regard to what's coming up in uh, civil unrest, post-election civil unrest. Uh, Oh, here we go. Um, let me just let me just uh, kind of square the circle. Let me just kind of wrap this up because I want you I want you all to 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 leave here and go into the next forty eight hours, going into the election, and I want you all to be able to feel like uh, you're not sitting on the edge of your seat when you really are sitting on the edge of your seat. Um, I think I think we're going to win. I think Biden's going to win. I think that uh um 
I think we're going to see landslide numbers in, in, in some states. I'll be very surprised if we don't. Uh, this, is, this is a conclusion that I've come to from looking at pre-election polls and uh, determining, you know, whether they're talking to likely voters or whether they're whether they're not talking to likely voters. Uh, this is from looking at the number of, of ballots that have been coming in, the overperformance uh, with the mail-in ballots that are already accounted for. Um, again, 83 million voted uh, so far, 47 million at this time in 2016. That's you know, we're on our way to twice as twice as much participation than 2016. And you know that when people vote, you know that 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 when when the people vote, the right wing generally loses. You know, it just takes people paying attention and making the effort to get out there and mark a ballot and send it back in. That's really all it takes. And this year, you know, Trump spent so much time. Uh, telling us how we're not allowed to be voting that, you know, I think that I think there's a little bit of reverse psychology here. I think people are just can't wait to vote. They couldn't wait to vote this year. Um, But let's make no mistake. okay? no one is excited about Joe Biden. They're 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 excited about getting rid of uh, getting rid of uh, what's his name, Donald Trump. Um, Joe Biden is, you know, I got to leave it on this. Joe Biden presents a a problem just that, that that we're going to have to deal with. And that problem, we're all very familiar with that problem. It's called centrism. All right. It's called neoliberalism. Uh, uh, I want you to understand that, that when people talk about centrism, it's, it's common for us to have this mental image of a horizontal line and the left end and the right end, and that there's a center in between the two. And that's sort of the, 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 the reasonable area. I want you to turn that line on its side. So it's vertical because this is the better way to understand it. What centrism is, is us, the workers, we're on the bottom. It's not left and right. It's top and bottom. All right. And people who call them centrist, they're not, halfway between the very top earners and the very bottom earners. Yeah. These people like Thomas Chatterton Williams and, you know, big media folks, they're making 500, 600,000 a year. They're, they're, you know, getting up there in that 3%, you know, maybe they're three percenters, maybe they're four percenters. If they're, um, if they're Rachel Maddow, they're like all the way, you know, they're all the way up in, in 2% territory heading towards 1%. The people who are when during Occupy, when we talked about the 1%, we're really talking about the 0.01%. You're talking about capital. You're talking about people who make money from money, you know, like the Waltons um, and, uh, and bankers and stuff. Uh, That's, that's not, who uh, uh, even the highest paid media people are, but highest paid media people are enough to be, you know, right up there in the four, five, four, three percent range. It is a vertical line, and those people are pressing down on us all the time. That's the way centrism works. Thomas Chatterton Williams uh, has been uh, just uh, roasted over the weekend on Twitter because he tweeted this out. He says, the hard left 
not liberals, to be clear, is fundamentally childlike insofar that it, it fuels itself and in its fury on a vision of some future state of purity that can be that can by necessity never be achieved. The very foundation of adulthood is the acceptance of compromise and imperfection. In turn, it's true that the far right fuels itself on a childlike nostalgia for the past perfect states that can never be achieved and in fact never existed either. Liberals are the genuine adults, yet liberalism is being devoured from the left and the right flanks at this very moment. Interacting this evening with the social media account of the far left journal Current Affairs was a lot like interacting with one of my children just pure detachment from real world constraints and circumstances. Well, you know, like let's look at real, real world constraints and circumstances. Who is, who is Thomas Chatterton Williams? He's a contributing writer to the New York times magazine columnist for Harper's board member at the American Academy, the Einstein forum and join persuasion. He just wrote a book called self portrait in black and white. And on his Twitter page, he has on his Twitter page, he has a, it looks like the back cover of his of his book. And in, in really big letters, it says, it's hard not to admire him. <laughs> he reaches out to both sides. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Chatterton Williams is going to tell us what, uh, you know, how to how to comport ourselves as, as leftists. That is somebody who thinks they're in this horizontal line where centrism is in that, that glorious, uh, you know, ethical and moral center. And that's not where it's at. We are on a vertical line and those people are pressing down onto us. I loved this, pushback that he got from an account called queer socialism that says, uh, so they quote tweeted him and they said, the way these people have deluded themselves into believing that having no core principles makes them the adult in the room full of children who try to envision something beyond constant political violence is actually incredibly impressive. (laughs) Ever notice how acceptable compromise and imperfection, these are quotes you know, taken from Chatterton Williams's piece that ever notice how acceptance of compromise and imperfection is never in referral to liberal Democrats relation and proximity to the actual left, but to their relationships to fascists on the right who very rarely compromise on their violences, by the way, I wonder why that is. He continues or she can, they continue. Um, It's becoming far more evident to ordinary people that liberal Democrats aren't the adults in the room, but the stabilizers and upkeepers of fascist rule. You exist to provide an illusion of opposition while actively upholding the neoliberal fascist order and inhibiting progress. There's nothing Puritan about wanting a world without constant radicalized violence, wanting and demanding political representatives that aren't subservient to capital, but to your material interest and to refusing to engaging in the lesser of two evilism for every election cycle. You very rarely hear Republicans talk about compromise and bipartisanship. They do what they want. 
by any means necessary. Yet it's all Democrats talk about, but people want to act like this isn't the natural order of things. Bad cop, good cop dynamic. Fascism needs neoliberalism. I just love that. I love it when people read something on Twitter that so that they that they're so incensed by that it inspires like some just fabulous writing. Yeah. I love it when that happens to me. You know, it's it's part of the um joy of of that particular social media platform. Uh you know, one one little coda on um Chatterton Williams. He he also got into this uh um situation to, uh, over the weekend while this other thing was going on with his uh, comments on the left he uh, he also um, really stepped in it uh, trying to humble brag about interviewing this uh, supermodel Emily Rajowski Radajowski and uh, in this article in it's in French um I forget which which magazine, but it's the magazine that his wife works at. Um, in this article, he says that this particular model, supermodel, Emily Ratajkowski, um, is the sexiest version of a creature right on our side of humanity, um, admittedly blessed with the most perfect breasts of her generation. But what really sets her apart, he says, is that she's... Is that she can read. <laughs> Shit, you're not. He says, um, her sexuality is omnipotent and animal. Most of us discovered it in the video of an unthinkable hit in this post Me Too era. Uh, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. You might remember that, y'all. Um, pretty girls were dancing topless there. And Radajowski with uh, her insecureness. She's insecure. Um, but all the more endearing for that insecurity. She stole the show, he says. But the day I read that she was a fan of Chilean novelist Roberto Milano, my brain shorted. No matter how much she really took the time to read the 1,300 pages of 2,666, the mere fact that she knew her name, the name of the author, actually his name, the uh, Gender pronouns are all messed up in this translation. Um, anyway, so the best breasts of her of her generation, and she can read. By golly, um, so the funniest thing happened. The uh, actual model in question quote tweeted Chatterton Williams in 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 just god tier freaking burn. Uh, this this is just so freaking beautiful. Um, and you know, people have been dunking on that, that misogynistic bullshit like all weekend, but you know, to have the actual, uh, model respond to this was, uh, was just, a um, this is, this is next level and, uh, I'm trying to find the actual piece. Thomas Chatterton Williams, by the way, is known for um, cancel culture because he's he's been involved in some other um, uh, sexual abuse uh, situations and 
and he's he's had a he's long standing problem with women women. So here's the supermodel. She responds. She uh, quote tweets uh, this this whole Charlton Williams thing, and she says. Um, she said, I've never read this before, but I really hope this will be the last of my she has breasts and claims to read profiles and interviews. Lots of levels of gross and embarrassing aspects to this, but the attempt at a feminist critique at the end is maybe the worst part. Oh, that's so good. That is just so good. Um, okay. We have... We have uh, in the next few minutes, we have Janine Moloff coming on. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'll be right back. I'll be right back with Janine Moloff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play you some dang music and uh, get a drink of water. Here's some here's some calypso and we're gonna get set up with Janine and we'll be right back. Janine, I think we've got you on the line now. Welcome. Yeah, you do. Thank you, Brooke. Okay, we're right before the election. I'm just going to get into it. The election is roughly some 48 hours away, and Donald Trump has been on the campaign trail mocking anyone who demands more than the adolescent ramblings of a 73-year-old man. Simultaneously, the Biden campaign was assaulted by the self-described MAGA cavalry while traveling from San Antonio to Austin, Texas. Now, this MAGA cavalry consisted of a convoy of approximately 100 trucks with heavily armed occupants that, among other things, brandished those military-grade weapons while attempting to run the Biden campaign bus off the road. That happened yesterday. To date, not a single member of the MAGA cavalry has been detained or criminally charged. 
The fact that Joe Biden has Secret Service protection was not sufficient to get the Republican Governor, Greg Abbott, and the Republican Attorney General, Ken Paxton, to demand that the police actually do their duty. Calls to Attorney General Paxton have not been answered. I made a few calls Friday. The governor's phone dropped all calls. This is a state of chaos, chaos and lawlessness of the Trump administration and the GOP of Trump. The GOP tolerates Trump's chaotic swirl because it's, it served as an effective distraction to the crimes of the same administration for the past four years. We see migrant babies thrown in cages, Black Lives Matter activists attacked, random black men and women murdered by police for specious reasons. We've seen the very wealthy skip past the rest of us as they are cutting enormous tax breaks they do not deserve, while the social safety net has never been so stingy and sparse. The crimes of this Trump administration and their GOP enablers came to a head on COVID hit. Over the past several months, we have lost over 225,000 Americans to COVID. It's Trump and his GOP buddies pursued a response characterized by what can only be called premeditated criminal neglect, which resulted in a genocidal level of negligent homicide. The evidence has been mounting for months a needless dire shortage of personal protective equipment or PPE for our medical community, a refusal to utilize the Defense Authorization Act so PPE, meds, therapeutics, ventilators, etc. could be made available. But nothing was more damning than the persistent lies. Trump granted Bob Woodward a series of 17 interviews that were recorded with his knowledge and consent. Have we lost Janine? I think we've lost Janine. Hold on. We will get her right back. Whoops. Okay. All right. I think we've got Janine back. Super. <laughs> okay. Can you hear me, Brooke? Yep. Sure can. Okay. Great. Okay. So I dropped my call. I'm just going to keep going. So Trump gave Bob Woodward these 17 interviews, and on February 7th, Trump admitted he knew COVID was deadly and he knew it was airborne. He also admitted that he lied to the public regarding this vital information which could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Trump's excuse was that he didn't want to panic the public, but the law doesn't care what his intent was. This premeditated withholding and outright lying regarding the true nature of COVID caused more death. While the virus isn't Trump's fault, and no one is saying that it is, the response he chose that resulted in anywhere from a low of 130,000 to a high of 210,000 American deaths is his fault. Those numbers come from a Columbia University epidemiology study released last week. All Trump had to do was push responsible COVID policy, and all he had to do was follow the historically accepted medical regimen for any highly communicable disease, namely conduct mass testing as soon as possible, quarantine when necessary, contact trace, socially distance, and mask. 
These are the same procedures used to reduce the spread of many other contagious diseases, including measles, but Trump would have none of that. Instead, Trump mocked masking as something, a, to use his vulgar language, a pussy would do. So why? Documentation came out that Trump was fine with COVID spreading. So, so basically, documentation came out that Trump was fine with COVID spreading. Additionally, he used any assistance from the feds as political ammunition to gain mileage for his own political aims. Just the past few days, more information regarding the criminality of the Trump administration approach to COVID surfaced. First, a report from the Dem-controlled House Oversight Committee. Health and Human Service officials were found to be engaging in a cover-up. And so this was written by Jake Johnson in Common Dreams. Um, Democrats in the House Oversight Committee accused Health and Human Service, or HHS, of engaging in, quote, a cover-up to conceal the Trump administration's misuse hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars for partisan political purposes. So there were new documents released by the Oversight Committee and Thursday, this Thursday, but, um, and um, they revealed the Trump administration officials attempted to use a $250 million taxpayer-funded public advertising and awareness uh, campaign to put a, a rosy spin, if you will, a good spin on Trump's disastrous COVID uh, policy in order to boost his reelection, uh, and that's as opposed to providing COVID assistance that might have saved lives. In early September, um, excuse me, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services gave a huge contract to the Washington D.C. consultant firm Forest Marsh Group, and that was to help them with an ad blitz that was going to be framed to, quote, defeat despair and inspire hope in the fight against COVID. Again, what would defeat despair would be actual medical attention and, and following proper medical protocols. So representatives Carolyn Maloney, Jim Clyburn, and Raja Krishnamurthy were quoted saying it's completely inappropriate to frame a taxpayer-funded ad campaign around helping President Trump in its weeks and days before the election. So, uh, you know, apparently, the, uh, based on initial reports that were reported in Politico, this was a plan that was pushed originally by Michael Caputo, who is the HHS communications official that has been pretty much pushed out. Um, the, the House Oversight Committee Democrats launched an investigation, again, as reported by Politico, and they demanded that HHS turn over documents and communications. HHS refused to cooperate. So the lawmakers went to contractors and subcontractors and got the documents showing that Caputo really framed this ad blitz to um, benefit Trump and his reelection bid, which is not what the money was for. And so in one messaging document from the Oversight Committee, Caputo pitched, quote, helping the president will help the country, end quote, as a tagline for the ad campaign. So basically this really ignores the idea that more up now it's about 227,000 Americans that have died as a result of these careless policies. Um, <clears throat> the committee went on to say, quote, the Trump administration's contractors, um, uh, Curtis, well, I'm going to skip that part here. Um, sorry. So there, were, there was a letter to his daughter, and the three Democrats I mentioned um, wrote that, quote, your failure to provide the documents we requested, especially in light of the information we learned from the contractors, appears to be part of a cover-up 
to conceal the Trump administration's misuse of hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars for partisan political purposes ahead of the upcoming election and to direct taxpayer funds to friends and allies of Trump administration officials. Now, additionally, this week it was revealed that Trump administration has been actively covering up key COVID-19 hospitalization data, which can endanger more people. And this was documented by internal documents that were obtained by NPR, National Public Radio. Again, Common Dreams also wrote about it, and Jake Johnson. Um, and so the documents obtained by NPR um, show that Trump's administration has been withholding critical hospital data that many medical experts say would be very useful in helping all every community prepare for, track, and possibly more successfully deal with COVID-19 outbreaks. NPR wrote, reported just this Friday that the documents that are based on hospital data, um, they, they've been collected and they're analyzed daily by the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and quote, highlight trends in hospitalizations in pinpoint cities nearing full hospital capacity and facilities under stress. They paint a granular picture of the strain on hospitals across the country that could help local citizens decide when to take extra precautions against COVID-19, end quote. Lisa Lee, who's a former CDC official, was quoted as saying the neighborhood data, the county data, and metro area data can be really helpful for people to say, whoa, they're not kidding, this is right here. And so, once again, the, what happened was the documents, to quote again what NPR found, the documents show the detailed information hospitals report to HHS every day is reviewed and analyzed, but circulation, and that means access, seems to be limited to a few dozen government staffers from HHS and its agencies, including the CDC and the National Institute of Health. Only one member of the White House Corona Task Force, Admiral Brett Girard, appears to receive the documents directly, end quote. So how they can... This is just withholding information that is actually necessary to try and track, contact trace what's happening. But the Trump administration sees this apparently as a way to hurt his reelection uh, chances, so they're basically hiding the data. And that is something that we can't have. A COVID exit strategy co-founder, Ryan Pajasaram, um, and he has an organization called what's I called COVID Exit Strategy. He's also a former data official in the Obama administration, um, characterized the decision to deny this hospitalization from the public view as reckless. <clears throat> and he was quoted saying, it's endangering people. This is what he told NPR. We're now in the third wave, and I think our only way out is really open, transparent, actionable information. So according to the publicly available data, which was also analyzed by the COVID tracking project, um, more than 40, 46,000 people in the U.S. are hospitalized right now, as of Thursday. And, um, and we saw a daily record of 90,400-plus new cases, as reported again by Common Dreams. Um, so, you know, once again, having this information is critical to hospital surge planning and guiding in local and state policies, and that's according to Dr. Leanna Wen, who is an emergency physician visiting professor of health policy and management at the George Washington University's Milkins School of Public Health, as she tweeted that Friday. Another, uh, then we have the, the stuff that leaked out about Jared Kushner bragging, I mean, it was on tape, how Trump wrestled the COVID plan back from the doctors. And the irresponsibility of that statement is beyond the pale. Um, I don't need to spend too much time on this one because it pretty much explains itself. Um, 
you know, Kushner boasted to uh, Bob Woodward in an April 18th interview, um, quote, Trump is getting the country back from the doctors. Okay, you know what? When I'm sick, I want a doctor. I don't want Jared Kushner. But that is the, the ignorance and the arrogance of this administration. They don't care who gets hurt. And Axios reported that on average, quote, nearly 72,000 people tested positive for the COVID virus every day over the past week. The U.S., um, so basically this is out of control. In mid-April, Kushner told Woodward, quote, there are three phases. There's the panic phase, the pain phase, and then the comeback phase. I do believe that last night symbolized kind of the beginning of the comeback phase. That doesn't mean there's still not a lot of pain and there won't be pain for a while. That basically was, we've now put out rules to get back to work. Trump's now back in charge. It's not the doctors. We have a negotiated settlement, end quote. This is craziness, okay? Apparently, boosting the economy for Trump is more important than for protecting people from dying from this this deadly disease. So, uh, you know, basically on social media, uh, very famous epidemiologist Eric Feigolding, I think is with Yale University, said Thursday that, quote, Kushner can go to hell for this comment. Okay? And so this is what we're dealing with now. The most damning report from the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus. The report is aptly titled Inefficient, Ineffective, and Inequitable. And this was published just Friday, a couple days ago. Um, so, you know, we know COVID-19 infections are skyrocketing again. The House report slams the Trump pandemic response. Um, to quote, this report exhaustively documents what has been clear that Trump administration's response to the coronavirus crisis has been a tragic failure. And basically, a day after the United States reported a record high of more than 90,400 90, COVID-19 cases in a 24-hour period. That, according to this article, as reported again by Common Dreams, is the equivalent of one new infection every second. It's just unbelievable. Um, and the report is quite detailed, uh, and, it de- and it talks about how Trump's response to COVID has taken what was already a bad situation and turned it into a public health, they call it catastrophe, um, and that, you know, they failed to, quote, alleviate not only that, but the ongoing economic hardships, and that they put, they prioritized, they put Wall Street's recovery over Main Street. And... The report says, quote, the virus is a global scourge, but it has been an American fiasco killing more people in the U.S. than in any other country. And what the subcommittee did, they compiled and summarized key findings from dozens of investigations and that they had been conducting um, since the committee, the subcommittee was established on April 23rd. Chairman, uh, Democratic Chairman James Clyburn uh, was quoted as saying, this report exhaustively documents what has long been clear. The Trump administration's response to the coronavirus has been a tragic failure. And now we have more than 227,000 Americans dead, more than 8.8 million Americans infected, and this is nine months. And the report also uh, spoke to the fact that the White House failed to protect millions of what they called economically distressed households who, you know, basically they're out of work, they haven't extended unemployment insurance. They've been playing those games. And 
you know, this is really out of control. So the subcommittee did make some recommendations. They said, quote, the administration must create and implement a coordinated national plan to defeat the coronavirus, save American lives, and revive our, con- our economy. Two, a coordinated national plan must be guided by the best available science, not political expediency. Three, Americans need the Senate to pass and the President to sign comprehensive relief uh, legislation to tackle the virus and support workers, families, and communities. And four, economic relief legislation must be implemented in a manner consistent with Congress's intent to target assistance to the most vulnerable Americans rather than wealthy corporations. And these recommendations are in very sharp contrast to positions taken by the White House. Um, according to Accountable U.S., President Kyle Herring on Friday, they said that Trump administration has thrown up their hands and surrender, ramping up rhetoric around herd immunity and publicly annoying, publicly announcing that they're not going to control the virus, end quote. Um, and so this is what we're dealing with now. So all these reports came out in the last couple of days. Um, so I wasn't going to report on all this tonight, but I couldn't avoid it. The last report in particular goes into really gory detail how the Trump administration has failed to just follow normal medical protocols. Uh, this is, and you know, we have a situation where um, earlier in the year, even PPE was restricted. And blue states had a hard time. This was way, Donald Trump's way of punishing blue states. Um, the cold-blooded indifference of this administration means that basically unless you're wealthy and white, you are expendable. So this is what we're dealing with now. And we've talked about this many times um, because election days are on the corner. Even if you don't agree with the Democrats on anything else. We need a same COVID policy. We're not going to get it from the Trump administration. We don't get the truth. We're not going to get a same COVID policy. And if we don't, they expect, the estimate is that probably close to a million more Americans will die. And that's what we're dealing with now. So in conclusion, we, I just had to look at this overall for election day. We live in the middle of a cruel political structure, and Donald Trump just happens to be the poster boy for that same 21st century failed state cruelty. We live in a nation that tears migrant babies from their mother's arms and then blames those same mothers who sought sanctuary from other failed states run by corporate-funded assassination squads designed to protect stolen resources and terrorize any legitimate union activity. We live in a society that denies effective health care during a deadly pandemic to all but the very rich. Donald Trump received every medical advancement available on the taxpayer dime while denying the same health care to the rest of us. While Donald Trump is working feverishly in court to overturn the Affordable Care Act so that people will be cut off from any health care. We live in a society that treats our fellow man as little more than interchangeable cogs serving the wheels of criminal, unbridled capitalism, the same unbridled capitalism that rations health care in a pandemic to the rich, leaving far too many Americans to die cruel and unnecessary premature deaths, terrified and alone. We live in a society that reduces our collective humanity to a cheap formula monetization meant to be exploited 
and cast aside like yesterday's garbage once the system has wrung the last bit of work out of our trashed bodies. We live in a society that actively endorses the moral cowardice we have commonly known by the moniker of racism. This racism is routinely used by the GOP as a wedge to secure unfailing support for a craven dictator and his corporate toadies from a sizable subsection of whites who value their white privilege far more than any remaining torn shred of humanity. We live in a society that blames the victims of fascism for the crimes committed by their oppressors. We live in a society that grants excuses to our oppressors in a wholesale fashion as long as those same oppressors feed the endless hunger of the very rich. And we live in a society that has, once again, obscenely monetized humanity while collectively washing their hands of humanity's blood, much like Pontius Pilate over 2,000 years ago. These crimes against humanity are as old as the planet, yet we hear little outcry from office holders. The Trump administration and the GOP of Trump have many crimes against humanity to atone for, with the planned genocide caused by COVID at the head of the line, counting nearly 230,000 needless deaths. This is Donald Trump's Pontius Pilate moment as he cruelly and indifferently washes his hands of the majority of the American people. The fact is COVID is merely the symptom of a society controlled by a GOP which has embraced fascism and made it socially acceptable. This GOP of Trump has made COVID deaths politically acceptable collateral damage. We cannot suffer during another four years of Trump's irresponsible and indifferent policies, especially regarding COVID. At what point did your child or your grandparent or your parent become acceptable collateral damage? At what point any of us expendable to the monsters of the GOP? And on this last show, right before the election, I beg every person, please vote. Please vote this monster. Please vote this Nazi Trump out of office. Again, vote as if your lives depend on it, because they do. And that's my report. Wow, Janine, thank you so much for that. Um, You know, I read something this week about uh, there was a study, I'm going to say it was Stanford, that did a study of the number of people, they, they looked at 18, here it is, Stanford impact of 18 Trump rallies with regard to COVID. Uh-huh. And they, they showed that uh, uh, just 18, and yeah. that's not all of the rallies that he's had, that infected at least 30,000 people. And at least yeah. so far at the writing of this article that I was reading, 700 had died. Now, my husband yeah. had seen a more recent article and the article that he saw said that 900 people uh, using this model have, have died from, uh, from those rallies. Well, and you have to consider the effects of contact tracing. These people go home. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, And then they spread it elsewhere. And the fact is Trump doesn't care. This is about, it's all about him. And Mm -hmm. this is an instance where what he has done by his own admission Okay, as taped, he cannot deny it, it's recorded. By his own admission, he chose a path of premeditated 
neglect, and it resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths. By any other definition, that is negligent homicide on a genocidal level. Period. Mm-hmm. And every GOP that every member of the GOP that went along with it or withheld that information is also guilty as an accomplice. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And all these people need to be criminally charged and held accountable. Otherwise, it, this will never stop. State of Missouri. You know, before July, we had just a very small number of cases. And then because Trump clowned about not wearing a mask, come 4th of July, everybody went out to the Ozarks, these young people, no mask, no social distancing, and then they went back to the communities and the COVID rate exploded in Missouri. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. And the thing is the country could have had a better response. And there is no perfect response. Okay? This is going to ebb and flow, and we know this. It's like any other communicable disease. You identify people through testing. You contact trace to see who they've had contact with. You quarantine, and then for everyone else, you mask and socially distance, and you use common sense, and then try and find the best therapeutics, all right, to prevent death and getting to them quickly. The fact is a vaccine is only going to do so much. Vaccines are only somewhat effective. It's not going to be the end-all, be-all. And mm-hmm. this is something where he decided that his reelection and the money that he would make from Wall Street was more important than the lives of the American people. You know, this is an instance where you saw the very rich leaving their jobs in Manhattan and taking helicopters daily to go to their homes in the Hamptons. Right. And everybody else behind to die. This is what right. we're dealing with. And Florida's a battleground state, and they've been hit hard by COVID. And even if you think everything else Trump did is great, who do you want to see die because of this madman? Vote him out of office. If nothing else, Joe Biden will give us a sane COVID policy, and we can deal with the other issues after that. Fabulous. All right, Janine, thank you so much. When we talk next week, we will have uh, we will know a little bit more about these elections. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, good night. And for the rest of you guys, uh, we are uh, finishing up maybe just a few seconds early this week, which is strange. So uh, I'm going to leave you with this little piece of music on the way out. Don't forget to vote. Uh, try to stay sane between now and next Sunday when we talk again. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. Awkward. We about to blow up from a nuclear bomb. I'm about to show up, got the right to bear arms. If we don't all die tomorrow, I'ma come for them blondes. Jiki torch holding motherfuckers right in your wrongs. Nazis marching on the streets and Nazis in charge. There's even Nazis on these beats and Nazis on the wall. Questioning me, I got the motherfucking scars. And it could have been me who got crushed.